Shakir in Israel, who is calling in from Israel, where he moved uh, just about five years ago. And uh, Daniel Raphael Silverstein is a rabbi, educator, meditation teacher, and MC poet. He lives in Israel with his family, where he teaches for Romamu Yeshiva and the conservative yeshiva, uh, that's capital C conservative, and directs applied Jewish spirituality, an online portal which makes the transformative spiritual wisdom of our tradition accessible to all who seek it. And I will put that link on the side, www.appliedjewishspirituality.org. Today, our topic uh, for anyone who's going to be a part of a Seder, anyone who's going to be a part of a Seder uh, will be not only meaningful, but helpful because we're going to explore the mystical and psychological perspectives of the Seder. Uh, have you been made a co-host yet? So oh, you, oh, I don't know, actually. Let me, let me check that. Okay, so um, you can share your screen with your sources? Oh, yeah, I, I can share my screen. Okay, so, excellent. Yeah, so, yeah. so uh, we're, we're pleased to welcome uh, Rev. Daniel, Rabbi Silverstein, to, to uh, facilitate the session. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rav Shmuley. It's really a pleasure to be with you and uh, a very, very warm feelings for you. And it's so great to be with your community. And uh, I'm really excited to share some Torah with you all. So as uh, Rav Shmuley said, we're going to talk about mystical and psychological perspectives on the Seder, which I hope will be helpful uh, you know, for everyone who's going to experience the Seder. I'm just going to start with a very, very brief glossary because I'm going to re refer to a few terms in the Hebrew original throughout the class. I just want to make sure that everyone who's watching and listening live and later has got these in their pocket. So I'm going to talk about the Haggadah, which is the text that we use to tell the story of leaving Egypt on Seder night. The Haggadah, the telling or the chronicle. A mitzvah, something that the Torah commands us to do. The word mitzvah, as well as meaning commandment, the root of the word also means connection. So we're going to talk about the commandments and the connections. Pesach, the Hebrew for Passover. Shavuot, the Hebrew name for Pentecost. And finally, Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim, leaving Egypt. But very importantly, Mitzrayim, the Hebrew word for Egypt, also means narrow place, constriction. And it's really that sense that is one of the main ways that makes Mitzrayim and leaving Mitzrayim and the whole story of Passover endlessly relevant in every generation. There's, is whether the narrow place we're leaving is an oppressive regime and slavery and brutality, which it often can be, but also what are the other kinds of narrow places and places of constriction that we can all experience in our lives. So that's what we're going to go into. And I'm going to start with a beautiful introductory source from the Chernobyl Rebbe, the Moanayim. He was a friend and a student of the Baal Shem Tov, who founded the Hasidic movement. And he says something very, very succinctly and beautifully, which is a deep principle of Jewish mysticism, but he just put it so concisely for us in this first source. He says, when the, when the appointed time comes for each mitzvah, the original primal cause of that mitzvah is awakened. When on, the when on the festival of Pesach, they, meaning the Israelites, left Mitzrayim, that narrow place, leaving the 49th level of impurity, they also left Mitzrayim physically. And now, when that time comes, every person can leave their shells, i.e. their spiritual constrictions. Therefore, we burn chametz, that's the leavened bread that we get rid of on Pesach, which relates to the other side. And on Shavuot, we receive the Torah to walk with her all year long in our service of the eternal. I'm going to go back over that and just explain a few different points that come out of it. So the first thing is this principle in the first sentence that really just brings the Jewish calendar to life for us so powerfully, 
when the appointed time comes for each mitzvah, the original primal cause of that mitzvah is awakened. Meaning, when we go around and around and around the spiral of the Jewish calendar, and it's the same every time, but it's different every time because we're different, and we experience a festival or any other day or moment in the calendar, it's not just that we're experiencing something which happened before. The original thing which happened, which we're talking about, is happening again. Right? We are we are every year given the opportunity to experience liberation this time. It's the same for every festival, and it's the same for Shabbat and so on. And then he goes on to say specifically about Pesach. What happened on Pesach was, according to Kabbalah, the ancient Israelites were on the 49th level of impurity, and that's the lowest you can get without being completely lost. The teaching from Kabbalah is that if they had dropped, God forbid, to the 50th, they just would have disappeared spiritually. They would no longer have been recognizable they would therefore would not have been possible for god to redeem them so the teaching is that god had to intervene at that exact moment to save them had to bring the schedule for redemption forward otherwise they would have been lost so that's what happened on Seder night there was this great big flash of redemption and now every single Seder night we get the opportunity to have the same experience we get this chance to have this amazing leap forward and where that's taking us is to shavuot where that's taking us is to the next festival, which is connected to Pesach through the seven weeks between them, which is known as the Omer, where we count the days and work on ourselves. And at Shavuot, he says, when we, when we mark on Shavuot receiving the Torah, we're not just marking somebody once received the Torah. He says, we receive the Torah in Shavuot to walk with her all year long in our service of the eternal, meaning Shavuot determines our relationship with the Torah. Right? So again, it's not just memory. It's actually like actively us living it. So this for me is a very important principle working with the Jewish calendar generally. And for me, it's been very, very powerful in my own life and the life of my family and my community in how we experience the Jewish calendar as real opportunities for growth and transformation every day and every step, and especially the big marks like Pesach. So that's for us just to bear in mind for everything else that we're going to see. Let's go to section one. And here, this is, uh, we're going to go through section one fairly quickly. So it's really just setting the scene. Just a few examples of how central speech is to everything about the Pesach story, the Exodus, and of course, the Seder and the Haggadah. So first source is uh, some choice verses from Exodus chapter 13, which some of us may find familiar or may recognize how they manifest in different places in the tradition in the Haggadah. Moses said to the people, Remember this day on which you went free from Mitzrayim, that narrow place, the house of bondage, how the eternal freed you from it with a mighty hand. No chametz shall be eaten. So first thing, remember. Second thing, and you shall tell your child on that day, saying, it is because of that which the eternal did for me when I came forth out of Mitzrayim. Thirdly, and when in time to come, your child asks you, saying, what does this mean? You shall say to them, it was with a mighty hand that the eternal brought us out from Mitzrayim, the house of bondage. Now, what's incredibly radical and surprising about these verses, which are talking about memory and talking to your children about what's going to happen is the thing that we're being asked to remember and talk about how it happened hasn't happened yet. We're being told in the middle of the story that memory, memory and storytelling are an essential part of what's going on. Indeed, we see, this is just one little example here, but those of you who want to look it up in the Torah and you may be familiar, you'll see the first Seder night wasn't later. The first Seder night was there in Mitzrayim, right? The ancient Israelites actually eat the Korban Pesach and the Matzah right there 
inside Mitzrayim, they're the ones who started the ritual, right? It wasn't something that we started later to commemorate something. So when, again, when we're, this really brings home for me the or the uh, point that when we're having a Seder night, we are actually reliving something, really experiencing it in a very similar way to them. And that's the Torah. And then our first work of Jewish mysticism, really you could call it proto-Kabbalah, even before Kabbalah, Sefi Yetzirah, says something very powerful. And it says something about every month in the calendar. It gives a letter of the Aleph Bet to, and it also gives it a quality or a activity. So for example, Kislev is the month of sleep and uh, Av is the month of listening and Tammuz is the month of seeing and so on. So our month here, this is about Nisan, our month of Pesach, is about Sicha, is about speech. This first line of Sefi Yitzirah, he made the letter He, that's the letter of our month, king over speech. And this is connected to Aries, the constellation for the month, Nisan in the year, and the right foot in the soul, male and female. So these are the unique characteristics of our month. We are not going to spend the rest of this class going into each one of those in detail. We're just going to work with speech. But I just wanted to bring this source because this shows, as I said, in our very first mystical source, the conversation goes way back for the mystics as it goes back for the Torah also. And, and I, what I didn't bring just for the sake of time, but I'll just mention quickly is in the rabbinic exegesis of these verses, which I brought before also, we see then the rabbis bringing out the importance of speech. And indeed, that's how we get to a lot of what we now call the Haggadah, the text that we say on Seder night. It comes from this commandment, which the Torah repeats several times to talk about the story. So we eventually get that in the Haggadah. And the mystics, of course, appreciate it in a slightly different way. When Sefi Yitzhira is talking about speech, is talking about the act that the Infinite One created the universe with. And it's seeing us in the image of God, but Selam Elohim as emulating the divine. So we're going to go into that aspect of what, what speech can do for us in our, in our spiritual and our psychological growth. And one last teaching in this section, just to set the foundation for that before we go into specifics, the Arizal, Rabbi Isaac Luria, who was a preeminent Kabbalist in Sfat in Northern Israel. Maybe someone needs to be muted. Since glass is a humra of the Ramah for Pesach, for Ashkenazim, by the way. Uh, see if I can do that. Great, I think I got it. Okay, going back to show my screen. Great. This last source in the section from the Ariza, Rabbi Isaac Luria. His, uh, he didn't write down his own teachings. His teachings were written down by Rabbi Chaim Vital. And here in Pri Chaim, we, we see the root of a teaching that's very often quoted. It appears in a few places in the Arizal's teachings that the word for our festival, the name of our festival, Pesach, can be broken up. I want to show the Hebrews. I'm just going to, uh, there you go. So Pesach, the Hebrew, Pesachet, can be broken up into these two words. Pesach, the mouth speaks. So Pe is Pe, Pe, He, and then Sach, Samachet. So that's the Arizal's pointing out to us that speech is absolutely central to everything to do with this festival, as we're going to keep seeing in different ways. I just wanted to offer those, as I said, as a foundation for seeing how that works. So let's move on to the next section now that we have our foundation. Number two, how does speech become free? And here we're really going to see some specific advice from the Hasidic masters for how to truly speak in a more free way, in a way that's built on our teachings around Pesach. And the, the source text, the root, is this text from the Zohar. And the Zohar is 
poetic and often very difficult to understand. Fortunately, we have Daniel Matt's amazing translation and his explanations, which I've used here, uh, to understand it a little bit better. But we're just going to draw out, select points from it, and then see what the Hasidic masters do with it, which is bring it a little bit more into the realm of the psychological and our everyday experience. So this passage from the Zohar says, come and see. As long as speech, now speech, according to Daniel Matt's notes, is connected, and generally in Kabbalah, it's connected to Shekhinah, or Malchut, the bottom one of the Sifirot, or the Tree of Life, which relates to manifestation in the world. So as long as speech, or Shekhinah, was an exile, voice, which relates to Tiferet, another one of the Sifirot, I will talk about that more after, voice withdrew from it. So speech is an exile, and voice withdrew from it. You have a disconnect between speech and voice. And word was blocked, voiceless. When Moses came, voice came. Moses was voice without word, which was in exile. As long as speech was in exile, Moses proceeded as speechless voice. And so it went until they came close to Mount Sinai and the Torah was given. At that time, voice united with speech. And then the word spoke as it is written. And God spoke all these words, so the Ten Commandments. At that time, Moses became fittingly complete with the word, voice and speech as one in wholeness. Tricky? Let's see what we can do. Okay. What the Zohar is telling us is that there's a gradual process of redemption and liberation, not only of the physical bodies of the people, but also of their spiritual beings, and specifically of their ability to speak. And it goes step by step by step. So first of all, speech and voice are disconnected, right? They, they can't, they can't uh, join to make any effect. And we see this in the text of the Torah where the people are being oppressed. They don't even know how to cry out. And there's a big turning point, right? In chapter two of Shemot of Exodus, around uh, verse 20 to 25, there were these key verses which are quoted in the Haggadah where the people cry out for the first time. This is a big turning point because the people giving voice to their suffering and crying out is the beginning of redemption. Until that point, nothing is moving, nothing is changing. So then the next thing that happens after that crying out of the people is that Moses is activated. Moses is at the burning bush. He gets the order to go back and save the people and so on. So... There are lots of, um, Zohar is working on lots of levels. It's telling the story of liberation in terms of what's going on inside us, also as a cosmic drama of the Sifirot. And as the Zohar sees it, the Sifirot, as well as being parts of us, are also really parts of God and parts of the cosmos. So the Zohar is seeing the enslavement of the Israelites is also this cosmic drama where different parts of the divine are actually being cut off from each other, exiled, removed. And there's this gradual process of bringing them together and fixing them, specifically bringing together voice and speech. And that ultimately happens, not even at the Exodus, but at Mount Sinai, which, you know, as I mentioned before, with Pesach is really about moving towards the festival it's connected to, to Shavuot, when we, when we receive the Torah. So we're on this journey to unify voice and speech. We're on this journey to see, to see if we can really speak from a place of wholeness. But what does that mean? Now we're gonna see some more specific sources bringing that down, as I said, into a little bit more like psychological language from the Hasidic masters and into practices we can actually bring into our lives. That's really what I go to the Hasidic masters for very often, taking the ideas of Kabbalah and bringing them down to our daily lives. So here we have Lekute Halachot, written by Reb Nossan of Breslov. He is the main student and follower and successor of Rabbi Nachman. 
in a way, no one succeeded Rabbi Nachman, uh, but he, he uh, did as much as anyone could too. And he was the conduit that many of Rabbi Nachman's teachings came to us through. So he says here, this is the meaning of Pesach, Pesach, mouth speaks. The essential thing is to speak of all his wondrous acts and to go on and on speaking about it as it is written. And anyone who adds to telling the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, of leaving Egypt, that is praiseworthy. So he's putting together a few things for us here that you know, we may already be familiar with, seen some of them before. The name of the festival means the mouth speaking. There's this beautiful verse in Psalms about speaking about the wondrous acts of the divine. And he combines that with the idea we have mentioned in the Haggadah, that the more we talk about the story of leaving Egypt, the better. And then he does an interesting thing. He connects that to singing, right? And there's no, there's no not everything he says so far, there was no mention of singing. He says the voice of melody is extremely precious and it has great power to awaken a person, to awaken their consciousness. For voice awakens one's intention. Now, that is fascinating me on so many levels because, as I said, he really made that jump, but it totally fits our experience and our practice of Pesach. Pesach is the only time I can think of right now for many of us when we do Hallel at nighttime, right? Hallel, the, the verses, the psalms of praise, which are often sung, and indeed, it's a wonderful thing. Many of us have the custom of singing a lot at our Seder tables, and that's a very important part of the practice for a lot of us. So... The power of melody, he's saying, is there to awaken us. And we, and as he says, voice awakens our intention. The kol mo'orer ha-kavana. I'll just highlight that in Hebrew there. Kol mo'orer ha-kavana. So he's using that the Zohar's language of how you know, voice and uh, speech uh, were disconnected. And he's going going back to that. And he's, he's adding he's adding nagina. He's adding melody into the mix. And he's saying, when you sing, it can offer a way to unify yourself, to have more intention, often more than speech, right? There's a special quality to singing that can help us tap into that. He goes on, there's another whole dimension in this teaching. He says, but real completion of one's voice comes from attaching, to, attaching it to one's speech with a strong and courageous bond, for this is the essence of all unifications. For one needs to bind the, their consciousness to their heart, for this is the essence of a truly wholesome consciousness, as it is written, and you shall be aware this day and return it to your heart that there is nothing else but God. So here again, drawing on the language of the Zohar, he says, if you want to attach our voice to our speech, and it's an amazing claim he makes here. This is the essence of all unifications. Just want to hide that. This is the Ikar Bechina Klal Kole Yehudim. So that's a very radical claim. Yehudim, unifications, is something that Kabbalah, the Jewish mystics, are constantly concerned with unifying different parts of the divine, different names of the divine, different aspects of the divine. That To, uh, to the mystic, to the Kabbalists, everything we're doing in Judaism all the time is about these Yehudim, these unifications. And he's saying the ultimate unification that brings together everything, that's the essence of all of them, is us connecting our head and our heart. This gap here. This is, this is the ultimate unification that we need to bridge. The, the bridge between, you can call it thought and feeling, mind and body, whatever language works for you. This is the essence of what he calls this shleimut hadata amati, this truly wholesome consciousness. Shleimut hadata amati. And he connects that to the verse about being aware of the divine, the adata hayom, And of course, it's a beautiful verse for him to use because this verse is using a language of knowing and being aware of the divine and returning our heart to the divine. So he's showing how head and heart work in union. So 
what's the practice advice here? What's, what's the, uh, you know, tachlis takeaway for us? When we speak, are we saying what we think? Or are we also speaking from a more embodied and heartfelt place of what we, we already feel, right? Of what is really shalem, is really, is really whole and complete and at peace with our whole being. But that, that's the offering here. And it makes me really think of the technique of uh, nonviolent communication or compassionate communication, which for me is just such a powerful technology for doing this, for speaking from where we really feel our experiences and in a way that we can really encourage and help and support others to do the same. So that's practice number one. And we can see another great Hasidic master offer another practice for hopefully uniting voice and speech and speaking in a way that's healing and liberating over the page. That's Sadako Cohen, favorite teacher of mine. Uh, you can see in the little bio I put there that he, put, he passed away in 1900. I really feel this says so much about who he was and what he teaches us. So much of his writing really brings so much of the tradition into modernity. And even I would say sometimes post-modernity in such a beautiful way. But he says here for us, as it is known from the books of the Arizal students, Pesach is a hint to Pesach, the male speaks as we've seen together. Formerly, speech was in exile. As Moses said, I am not a man of words. So that's a beautiful uh, bringing of, of what the Zohar said before, that speech was an exile when we were in Egypt. When we were being oppressed, we didn't even have the words to express ourselves. And even Moses starts off at the burning bush when God says, you know, you've got to go back and save the people. Moses said, sorry, you got the wrong guy. You know, I, I can't even speak. I'm not even a man of words, right? So we see, we see that, that inability to articulate is key to the people's situation and even Moses' situation at first. He goes on. Everyone who merits to attain the light of Yitzhiyam Mitzrayim, leaving the narrow place, which is the departure of speech from exile, which is awakened every year at the same time, as is known from the sanctity of the seasons, can multiply their words as they wish. So he's offering a very specific promise that if we merit this, this holy light, this illumination which comes at this festival, then something will happen to us. We will, our speech will be affected in a positive way from this Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim, from this departure from our narrow place. So there's a liberation of our speech. And then he gives the practice advice for how to achieve this. I heard a hint concerning this verse in Exodus 14. Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp before Pihachera. So this is at the beginning um, of uh, Pashat B'Shalach, when the people are still not yet at the sea, which is going to split. They're still, it seems, trapped within Mitzrayim and within the wilderness of Mitzrayim. And they camp at this place of Pihachera. And God says to, uh, to Moses to tell the people to go back and camp there. And it seems a strange uh, thing to do. It seems that God wants to trick Paro by doing so, because uh, he, he thinks that he's going to lure Paro to chase the people. So turn back and camp at this place called the Mouth of Freedom. And here's his Hasidic rereading of this episode. He says, one must settle oneself and camp, I be still, before anything free comes out of one's mouth, to speak everything which arises in one's spirit. So we have Piha the Mouth of Freedom. And he's saying, if you want to have a Mouth of Freedom and speak freely, then you have to do what the Israelites did at this place called Mouth of Freedom. They have to camp. You have to settle. And to me, this is great specific practice instruction for the difference between speaking from a place of the usual stream of thought that most of us are in most of the time and being a little bit calmer 
a little bit more settled, a little bit more in tune with what's going on inside ourselves and speaking from that place. And I'm sure that's something we've all experienced many times in our life, the difference between those. And we know it's good advice, but we might not always think there's time. It's one of those things we might think, you know, yeah, you know, it's great. It would be great to be more calm or to be more settled, but you know, I'm busy right now. I just got to do X, Y, and Z. And there's serious advice here that speaking from that place actually liberates us and the world, brings liberation to the world. But that's the, the offering there. I want to bring one last Hasidic teaching about speech. This is less directly connected to Seder and, and Pesach, but I couldn't leave it out. It's too foundational and too beautiful from the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement. I feel it relates so beautifully to everything else we're saying. He says, when you speak, don't think that it's you speaking, but the life force that is in you, that is the blessed creator speaking through you. And through this, you will raise speech up to its source. And this awareness also brings equanimity. For also everything your friend says is all from him. May he be blessed just as with you. So again, when you speak, and this is something to maybe just try a little bit sometimes just to introduce a thought. Sometimes when I teach this uh, in a smaller setting, I tell people to you know, make sure they're muted and then just you know, take a minute to just say a few words and just try it out. So I encourage you to try it out after this class. Say something, say anything. And just bring in the intention. If there is a God, if there is an Ensof, an infinite one, a creator, a life force, whatever you want to call it, my speech is part of that. I, this oneness is flowing through me right now. That's the teaching here from the Baal Shem Tov. And it's the same for everything and everyone else we encounter. Right? Other people speaking to me are also. That's just the Ensof flowing through them. And he, as he says, that can really help bring equanimity because instead of taking everything personally as like, oh, what's this person doing? What's their agenda? What, what, what do they want from me? Instead of that, we can have an approach of like, okay, this is all the oneness manifesting in different ways. You know, what is the message I'm receiving right now through this vessel? So I encourage people, especially to experiment with that in prayer. It's such a powerful technique when we're praying, we're anyway trying to communicate with the mystery of the infinite one such a powerful intention to bring in that we are ourselves a part of that mystery and that oneness is flowing through us in our speech. Let's uh, move to the next section and which we'll get very specifically back to say tonight. And I really am looking forward to hearing what folks might have to say about all of this. We're doing, I'm doing uh, everything in one go and then I want to hear the questions and comments at the end. I'm really excited to hear what folks are making of this. So looking at the Seder, the text of the Haggadah, uh, Avadim Hayinu, we were slaves. Even if we were all wise, all people of understanding, all elders, all knowledgeable of the Torah, it would be incumbent upon us to speak of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, of leaving Egypt. And anyone who increases their telling of Yitzhak Mitzrayim is praiseworthy. So it's a famous text. Many of us are very familiar with it. But we're going to, hopefully in the context of this class and what we've seen already and what we're going to see more of, hope it's landing for people. This is not just dumb. It's not just, it's not just like, oh, you know, we don't have anything else to do, so let's talk about this. No, this, this is a very powerful spiritual and psychological act of healing, as we're seeing. Let's see the next source from the Talmud. The rabbis taught, if the child is intelligent, they ask their parents. If not, the wife asks her husband. If not, the husband asks himself. Even two scholars who know the laws of Pesach ask one another. So my favorite is actually the penultimate one. If not, the husband asks himself, meaning 
if you are for some reason in a situation on Leil HaSeder, on Sedana, on the first night and second night, if you do that too, or Pesach, if you are on your own or you're not with anyone else you can talk about the subject with for whatever reason, you have an obligation, according to Jewish law, to talk about it to yourself. An obligation. An obligation, not just to think about it, right? Not just to open a book about it, to talk about it. Very, very specific. I love this quote from Aviva Zornberg I heard on On Being. She says, there's a fixed text to the Haggadah, but it's supposed to be just an opener for the proliferation of more ideas and more attempts to tell the story in a way that will come closer to what can really affect us. I think she puts her finger so beautifully, as always, she is a master, on, on the power of this technology that our sages are giving us of speaking about it, even if you had no one else to speak about it with. And most of us, I hope, are fortunate that we can find some way and someone to talk about these ideas with at some point. Though, of course, you know, with the pandemic, maybe more of us uh, than usual are experiencing the possibility of you know, having been alone and maybe being alone again for Satan night. So the idea you know, is relevant for us in so many ways. Let's see what happens next in the Haggadah and Rabbi Gamliel. And then we'll see how this idea relates and how the sages translate it going forward. In each and every generation, a person is obligated to see themselves as if they left Mitzrayim. As it is stated, you shall tell your child on that day, saying, for the sake of this, did the Eternal do this for me in my going out of Mitzrayim? Not only did the Holy One, blessed be He, redeem our ancestors, but He also redeemed us along with them, as is stated, and He took us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which He swore to our ancestors. So the second verse there from Deuteronomy, from Devarim, is being said in the context of a generation who didn't actually experience it themselves. It's the children of the people who experienced it. So just like them, we didn't experience it ourselves, but it's still directly relevant to us. And we're going to see in a moment what Maimonides does with that text and the, the Mishnah that it's based on and how it relates to the work we're talking about doing. First, this beautiful quote from David Brooks helps us really, uh, I think, focus in on, the, again, the work for, the, for us to do. He says, once people start speaking to each other and telling stories to each other, they generate alternate worlds. A story isn't an argument or a collection of data. It contains multiple meanings that can be discussed, questioned, and reinterpreted. Interpreted. Storytelling becomes central to conquering fear. It's a way of naming and making sense of fear and imagining different routes out. Storytellers expand the consciousness, waken the sleeping self, and give it their hearers the words and motifs to use for themselves. Jews tell the story of the Exodus each generation to understand the fears they feel at the moment. Stories create new ways of seeing, which lead to new ways of feeling and thinking a great articulation of so much of why this is important for us on so many levels so it reminded me of a quote he says there that stories that storytellers expand the consciousness and waken the sleeping self and rabbi nachman famously said that people often tell stories to put people to sleep but i tell stories to awaken people he said and there are many very uh, dramatic deep stories by rabbi nachman where he does just that so let's go back down to that text we saw in Rabbi Gamaliel. That in every generation, we have to see ourselves as if we left, as if we left Mitzrayim ourselves. And let's look at what Maimonides does with that. He adds one letter to the text. Originally, it's from a Mishnah. He takes the Mishnah as one letter. And I'll highlight the word here, Laharot, because originally it was Lirot. He, the Mishnah said in every generation, we have to see ourselves as if we're leaving Egypt. And he says, in every generation, we have to show ourselves, we have to present ourselves. The hey, 
makes the verb into causative. So from see to show, from see to cause to show, to cause to see. So in every generation, we have to show ourselves as if we right now are going through this, as if we just left Mitzrayim. And he, and he offers the same verse that we have there in the Haggadah about how even the next generation do, this, do the same thing. So what does it mean? Here I, here I would just like to pause for a moment and just let people silently reflect on this and that in a few minutes when I finish the presentation, I'm very interested to hear what people think about this. What does it mean to see ourselves as if we are going through this ourselves and to present ourselves in that way? Like what, what are some of the different ways that we can bring that into our own Seder this year? To see myself as going through it and to share that experience with others. It reminds me, there's a custom among some communities to uh, chase each other around the table with scallions, with spring onions, uh, you know, protect, with some people pretending to be the Egyptian taskmasters and uh, others pretending to be the Israelites. And you know, the, the, the taskmasters are like hitting the Israelites with the scallion. So you know, that's one way we can act out the story in that kind of way. And it can, can be liberating and cathartic on many levels. How else can we see ourselves and show ourselves to be going through this in a way that is liberating for us and the people we're with? Let's do, let's do one more section and then I'll be wrapping up and I'll be very interested to hear what you will think. So the, uh, the pre-Sadiq, Rav Sadok, who we said before, we have a brief teaching here from here. It's just offering some context for our final teaching. So he says, Emunah, which we usually translate as faith or belief. He says, through Emunah, a person can imagine for themselves that the ultimate sovereign, the Holy Blessed One, is standing above them and seeing their actions. So often emunah, faith or belief, is something that is talked about in passive terms. You either have emunah or you don't. I'm a believing person, I'm not a believing person. Certainly in my surrounding culture growing up in an Anglican school in England, people were either believers or not. That was the way I understood emunah. But in Hebrew, it's radically different. The root of the word for emunah, aleph, mem, nun, is also the root of the word for artistry and craft. So emunah, as Rav Sadok is saying here, is actually something we create for ourselves through our own creative will and, and energy. We have to choose what we want to believe and imagine it for ourselves. That's the way many of our mystics use the word emunah. So bearing that in mind, let's look at this classic Sfa'emet on emunah and our connection to the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim and our work on the Seder night. So the Sfa'emet says, the Haggadah says, in each, every, in each and every generation, a person is obligated to see themselves as if they left Mitzrayim. And then it continues, the divine took us out. So on, have we seen that? It appears from this that through Emunah, that there is a Yitzhak Mitzrayim for every generation, revealed in this practice of Sedanite. And it appears to me that although, sorry, that also through that Emunah, a person enters into the collective and certainly life is drawn to every Israelite from the collective experience of Yitzhak Mitzrayim for Israelite consciousness. Only through Emunah can a person come to this. So Emunah, this imaginative faculty, ability to imagine ourselves going through something, is going to connect us to the collective experience somehow. It goes on. Once a person sees themselves as if they left, and know and believe that even the enlightenment that they have would not exist without the without Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Sorry, I'll read that again. And once a person sees themselves as if they left, they know and believe that even the enlightenment that they have would not exist without Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Through this, it is revealed to them to see how to really leave. 
So once the person experiences their connection to the collective experience of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, this big liberation that's happening every year this time, once I can identify somehow myself, my own experience with that, then something is revealed to me. A deeper liberation, next step of liberation is revealed to me. He goes on. This is the, so is the explanation for the teaching in the Haggadah. Even if we were all wise people, and so on, and we saw that earlier, it's even if we're all wise, we're still obligated to talk about it. For even a wise person who is cleaving to the living divine must know that everything they are experiencing is through Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Saying, I don't know, I don't care how clever or wise you are. You are nothing without this. None of us would be free. As we say in the Haggadah, if it wasn't for Yitzhak Mitzrayim, we would still be enslaved. Nothing in our lives would be the way it is unless it were for this experience. He goes on, that is the truth, but it must be clarified through Emunah, which is the recital of the story in clarifying, open, and explicit language that in every generation there is the Yitzhak Mitzrayim according to the concerns of that generation. And all of this occurs at the time of the original Yitzhak Mitzrayim. I'll finish and then we'll recap. And according to a person's Emunah, that they themselves are like ones who went out, this aspect is revealed to them and they feel the current Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And so every person can leave their own personal mitzah, their own personal narrow place or place of constriction. Let's just recap that last bit. The Haggadah said, even if you're so wise, you still have an obligation to talk about this. Because he's saying, without this essential activity, this practice of talking about it, remember, even if you're on your own, you have to talk about it. You are nothing. None of us have any freedom and any ability to be ourselves without this. And he says, this is true, but it's not revealed to us unless we put in the work of Emunah. And what is Emunah? It's talking about the story, as he's saying, and connecting ourselves to it. He's saying we have to use our imaginations to put us into it. And specifically, he says, to understand there's a Yitzhak Mitzrayim according to the concerns of that generation. So I'm connecting to the story I'm reading in the Haggadah. I'm reading and reading about the ancient Israelite slaves. That is very important. That's In many ways, that's the foundation of what happened and what I'm experiencing now. But what is the Yitzhak Mitzrayim of my generation? What is the liberation happening now? right now, or that needs to happen now, right? That I need to tap into, that I need to connect to, that I need to be a part of. What is that, Yitzhak Mitzrayim? That's what's happening. And I need to use my imagination to connect my own experience and the original Yitzhak Mitzrayim with that. And I have an obligation to do that. And once I do that, he says, then I'm like one who went out. And, and something is revealed to me. What's revealed to me? My own personal liberation. Because he's saying, my own personal liberation is actually dependent on my connection to the collective. And, you know, in many ways, this is a radical and countercultural text for us who are living in a hyper-individualistic culture. We're so used to thinking that liberation only comes in the context of individuation, of me finding out exactly who I am and what I want. But he's saying, actually, there's an aspect of liberation that comes from connecting our story and our imagination to the collective liberation. We desperately need that. And one very, very final snippet to end with, and I'm so excited to hear everyone else's thoughts and questions from the Mo'anayim, who we started with the Chernobyl Rebbe. He says, it's a mitzvah to always speak of Yitzhak Mitzrayim in every moment that we're speaking at all. So everything we said in this class about speech and talking about Yitzhak Mitzrayim and liberating ourselves and connecting ourselves to our collective to find liberation through what's going on right now in the world, 
it's actually incumbent on us for that to be an aspect of our speech all the time. For whatever we're saying, whoever we're talking to, our speech is always an act of liberation, potentially, which we have an obligation to make it so. So that's the end of uh, what I have to share with you frontally. I'm very, very excited to come back together with you all and hear your comments, questions, anything else you'd like to share about it. Amazing, amazing. That was such a whirlwind of sources, uh, deep sources, profound sources. Um, uh, and as we invite folks to unmute themselves to comment, uh, Reb Daniel, I'll also just let, uh, uh, flag that there's two questions or thoughts already on the chat over there you can check out when you have a moment as well. So friends, feel free to unmute yourself and uh, jump in. Shall I respond to what's already on the chat? Uh, yeah, maybe that's a good start actually, yeah. Wonderful. Okay, so Sheridan Stan, was the building of the golden calf of speech being liberated? Interested. Interesting question. Um, I, I'm thinking about the story of the golden calf and I'm not immediately thinking of like many connections to speech per se, um, but Cheryl and Stan, if you wanna um, either unmute yourselves and talk about this and say, say a little bit more what you're thinking about or write it in the chat, I would love to kind of uh, hear more about what's behind the question. Uh, Rabbi, perhaps we're talking about speech through action, but it does seem you, you were talking about we were finally free to speak and the, the Jews were speaking. They, they weren't saying what everyone wanted to hear. So that's what I'm asking. Is that an example? Beautiful. Okay. I think, I think I'm understanding the question now. So maybe, maybe I think I'm inclined to look at the golden calf as um, the Israelites acting from a place of fear and immaturity. Essentially, they weren't ready for the level of freedom and maturity that they were being given. You know, they, they were still very, as Moses actually says to God, like, and a lot of the commentaries say, they were only very recently released from slavery and they weren't yet ready for the experience of essentially being alone without mummy is really what it, what it comes down to in a lot of the sources that Moses is, you know, is their parent figure and he, he seemingly has abandoned them. Um, so you, in, that, in the light of your question, though, you, you could put that together and you could say, you know, the golden calf, is it, the golden calf is kind of like their, their cry, their, you know, their, their toddler crying out and saying, wow, where's my mummy? You know, I want my mummy. And you know, what comes out is them saying, if I can't have my actual leader and my actual God, then I'm going to make my own, which actually, yeah, actually, I think it works quite well as a reading of it. Yeah, thank you for that. Do, do you want to, um, Stan, do you want to say anything else about that or follow up? No, thank you. That was great. Uh, let's see, from Judy, I have a direct message here. Oh yeah, so okay, so request for the source sheet. Um, we can definitely share the source sheet. I can't do it right now, but I'm happy to email it you after or um, maybe Rav Shmuley can do that also. Um, let's see, fascinating that in Deuteronomy, God says the Exodus was to give us the land and not to be given Torah and to renew the bread. In Deuteronomy, right. So the ultimate direction of everything was to uh, was towards you know the civilization of Judaism being embodied and you know to be to be lived on the land. Absolutely, yeah. That's uh, that's that's the ultimate direction of the liberation. Um, it makes me think of uh, actually a famous uh, teaching by Nachmanides by Ramban on the book of Exodus. He says the book of Exodus isn't, the story of liberation is not complete 
until the people have a mishkan, a tabernacle, where the divine presence dwells. I think Julie's pointing out there's a stage after that. The journey continues. So it's not just liberation for its own sake. It's like liberation to get somewhere specific, to, to an embodied and manifested reality. Thanks for that, Rabbi, Julie. Beautiful. Rabbi, I'm, I'm fascinated by your uh, the notion of emunah. So I, I looked at, at and uh, saw that the word amen is related to that it seems to me that if if it's a conversation over the um over the generations it's not a completed conversation or at least it's not a continued conversation until we raise our voices either saying amen or finding our own interpretations if we're able to do that first one i love that beautiful judy yeah yeah i can't i can't say better than that that's amen <laughs> I wonder, I, 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 you know, I wonder if there's something to pick up on here. Like, um, I, I'm, I'm feeling in this section right now, like Pesach is the opposite of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is like self-focused. It's about yourself, like being introspective. Whereas Pesach, it's really not about the self. It's really about looking beyond the self. Yom Kippur is very, um, very centralized, right? It's, um, you go to the synagogue and um, there's only very few people whose voices are heard, right? The, the, the cantor or the chazan, the rabbi, right? And um, Pesach is very decentralized. You've got, you're at home. Everyone is kind of involved. Yom Kippur, you listen. You don't really speak at all, Yom Kippur. You know, Pesach, it's all about, like you're saying, it's all about speaking. And, um, and, and, uh, and, 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 and the themes are so different. And I wonder if there's something to pick up on here on like, like we think of Judaism sometimes as monolithic and here like the nature of speech is so different. The theme is so different. And I wonder like, how do you situate Pesach within, um, you know, today's Jewish consciousness as a, as a unique vehicle for like the role of the role of Jews today? I love that question. Um, so first of all, I want to say your question made me think of how our sages talk about the two halves of the year. The days of rain, the winter months that Yom Kippur is right at the beginning of, right? It starts with Rosh Hashanah. And that is all about turning inwards and turning into, you know, introspect on our individual selves. And then Pesach is right, is right at the beginning of Nisan, right? And it comes with Nisan. So that's the beginning of the days of sun, Yomatachama, when we're turning outwards, as you say, to community, to our collective identity. So I think, you know, I mentioned towards the end of the session of my presentation that some of these teachings are challenging in a hyper-individualistic society we're so used to thinking of liberation only in terms of the individual but yeah what does this have to say about the importance of the collective exactly i think you know the best seder nights and you know i hope this is available to people at least you know including uh doing it over zoom if necessary you know are, i think the best seder nights are not ones where people are alone and only asking themselves their questions i think that's bediavad i think that's uh, you know a, a a not ideal situation the rabbis are describing that i think that, that magic that David Brooks was describing of telling the story and learning about who you are through hearing your story reflected back through someone else. I think it's something we really need. And I think it's so rich when we do it with people who are different to us. I think and that's something that we, we really need in our community and in our world right now. Yeah, I, if I can jump in with one more thing before others jump in. Uh, you know, American Jews, um, and I know you're not an American Jew. You're, you married an American Jew who's now an Israeli Jew. Um, uh, but, but you lived here, and so you know. You know, by and large, American Jews, let's bracket the, the, the ultra-Orthodox population, 
I think like the outward looking message of Pesach is the vulnerable in America, right? People talk about immigrants and refugees and the poor. And I wonder like, what do you see in Israeli consciousness across the political spectrum as like how people look outwards in Israel as in regards to this notion of liberation? Is it about Jews? Look, we made it, we have self-determination. Is it about other vulnerable populations in one's midst or globally? What do you hear as, a, as an Israeli discourse around Pesach today? So I am hearing two things. One is the, yeah, the narrative of like, boy, we've been through a lot and we're carrying so much collective trauma and like, wow, you know, in every generation they tried to, you know, rise up against us and like, we made it, we're here, as you said. And the other one is really the turning inward to the spiritual uh, inside each individual and then trying to build community with that. I'm seeing so many examples of that in Israel at the moment of, of people doing amazing spiritual work in community, of beautiful communities of uh, psychological healing, of uh, singing, of learning communities, uh, really people trying to connect to, you know, some of the kind of sources that I'm bringing in this session, Hasidic sources and Kabbalistic sources, um, to say like, you know, what does it mean for us to be essentially sharing our deep selves, sharing our souls in such a deep way and like building community on that basis and really seeing that kind of spiritual renaissance. See another comment on the chat. That's why uh, Shiha Shirim is the perfect writing to be reading on Pesach. Reawakening is another liberation. Beautiful, indeed. And also, uh, Judy, thank you so much for that. I'm going to add to that that Shiha Shirim itself actually has contains so much of what we were just talking about right now in those multiple levels going on at the same time, right? It's about two individuals who are in love. It's also a love story between us and the divine. Right? And so it has, contains so, so much of Jewish history and Jewish spirituality in it. I'm going to um, share something with everyone and put it in the chat, which is uh, a guided meditation, which you know, takes some of the principles I've been talking about, about using our imaginations. And it's a preparation for Satan night can also be used on Satan night. And you'll see if you go to the link there, there's a few different versions of it, depending on how long it's like short, medium and long. And uh, it's, uh, I hope, helpful for people to do this work of imagining yourself connecting with the original Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And then applying that to your own situation, as Sfatima said, connecting it to what the liberation is for our generation. Lenore, do you want to weigh in? Rabbi Uter, Dr. Shenkai. Just want to make sure everyone has the chance. I, I just have too much to think about. Okay, I, I absolutely, please send the source sheet so I can read this again. Oh, it's but... on the side now. You should be able to access it. Eddie posted it over there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, yeah, if you can email it as well, that's, if that helps. I'm, I'm just, all I'm thinking is that as decades ago when I was, I'm a liberal Jew and I had sort of disconnected as a young adult and Pesach is one of those holidays that for me personally, and I, and I think for many, many American Jews is sort of like the connector to the tradition, you know, in terms of 
both as a young adult striking me both as what was my personal sense of liberation, you know, and where was I, Miss Ryan? I mean, when I got that concept, it was, you know, amazing. Um, and, and how, and what does that mean for me? But also as Rob Shmuley just said, you know, the, the connection to the larger issues of oppression and liberation. Um, and I think that's just so important for people who were where I was in my twenties, partly for where I am now, but what you've brought this idea about speech. And I mean, the whole, the whole concept of speech, I really have to just go back and read the sources and think about it more before I have anything to say. By the way, Lenore, thank you for that. And I just want to share that a reminder from the Pew study that says only 23% of US Jews said they attend religious services at least monthly, 23%, right? 70% said they participated in the Seder, right? So it, it's very interesting. There's many implications there, but, um, the, but the idea of the Seder as a connector to one's past and one's identity is, is, is well warranted. I will post that in the side if anybody wants that. The, uh, the whole point of the Seder ritual really is to um, develop a, an understanding over your own years that, that, that matures and that changes as you change. Just like if you're not reading Torah around every year, that's one thing. But if you attend to Seder, it, it has a different resonance for you every stage of your life and, and even every year of your life. Yeah, that's the, the beauty of these repeated rituals, isn't it? That we grow with them. We can, we can use them as markers and reflections for our own growth. Uh, I see something else from Sharon and Stan. Is singing then the elevation of speech? Highest form of speaking to Shem. Yeah, thank you for putting it like that, Cheryl. Um, that, that is, I think, what Reb Nossam was saying in that source in Likutei Halachot. He, he I think that's his claim. And there are a few other places in his teachings where he makes a similar claim. So yeah, I, th I think that, that is uh, that is what's going on there. And you know, I, I wish us all uh, the gift of singing and sharing voice on Seder and I and beyond. Except how does that in a practical way relate to COVID and the dangers of singing? You know, I have a, I'm gonna have a young adult in my house who I, you know, she's gonna have a mask on except when she's not, uh, except when she's not eating. And um, because she works in restaurants and it puts us at risk and, thoughts about that right because i'm really thinking maybe we shouldn't sing at all this year <laughs> around the same table that is yeah that that of course you know pikuach nefesh concern for saving life of course overrides everything else um so if there's a real a real uh, danger there through that then of course that that's the priority um and you know please god this will be a temporary situation and we'll go back to being able to sing together fully Rabbi Yudar, do you want to weigh in at all? No, nope, uh, you're on mute still. No pressure, just if uh, if uh, if interested. Uh, or if not, Dr. Shenkine. Yeah, I think, um, thank you for your your talk. I, I appreciated it very much and I've learned a lot. Um, for me, I, I think Seder is an opportunity to be conscientiously aware and um, both in a personal way and in a community, be that community of, of family, often other people who are invited. 
and, and sharing the awareness, it, it being woke, if you will, um, but sharing the awareness of what's going on in the world and, and also how it relates to the thousands of years of suffering, be it our own suffering coming out of Egypt and the fact that suffering doesn't go away, it just changes. So the reality remains and the details are, are what change. And so hopefully in, in the most, I think, productive of satyrs, um, people think about what can I do? You know, what, what contribution can I make to perhaps change this, this trend or this tide, if you will. And so um, I think particularly for, you know, for our children to be able to, um, to magnify that awareness, even for, for that period of time. I mean, you know, we all talk about this in our families a lot, but, but to do it in a bigger group, I, I do think changes the awareness and changes that personal sense of commitment to some of these causes. Yeah, thank you for that. I go to Shankan. I really appreciate that. I I think I want to say to that, um, you know, when when the Mo'anaim, that final source says that we should always be speaking about Yitzhak Mitzrayim, I feel that cooler too to kind of kind of act, activist posture. You know, he's saying that like everything we say essentially has to be an act of liberation. So yeah, I amen to what you said. May 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 our sages uh, help to make us more free and also help to activate us. You know, to be agents of freedom in the world. Amen. I would just like to throw in one thought that is not particularly what would the theme of this is today, but about Jews and Pesach and how we think of, and the larger issues of liberation. I'm always shocked when I hear and I, I've, I've heard Jews say when they're talking about African-Americans, you know, why are they still talking about slavery? It's over. And recently I heard somebody else, there was a, a program in my congregation where they were talking about, um, I think a, a lynching project in the state that I live in. And a woman came and she said she was shocked that she mentioned to a Jewish friend she was going to this. And her friend, the Jewish friend said, why are they just focusing on the negative? And my, my response was, what I say to Jews is, and what do we do? What do you say every year around your Seder table? I mean, it's just um, shocking to me how we have this obligation to tell our story of slavery every year. And yet many of us are just so dismissive of people who really recently lived through slavery of like them even mentioning it, much less telling their story. Thank you for that. Beautiful. Okay, friends. Um... We want to thank you, thank Rabbi Daniel Raphael Silverstein so much for this opportunity to learn with him and the gift of these sources, which we can continue to learn, which are real gifts um, to be able to have access to these and to learn from such a master teacher who we hope will have more opportunities. Friends, we'll have one other Pesach learning session before the holiday. On Monday, also from Israel, we're going to learn with Hannah Lakshin Bab um, on, on the topic real questions and fake questions at the Seder. That will be Monday. Arizona time, 11 o'clock. That is Eastern time, uh, two o'clock. And that is eight o'clock in Israel. So thank you all so much for joining. And thank you again, Rev. Daniel, for this, uh, this wonderful session. Thank you. Have a great thank day. You. Lovely to you. Lila Tov in Israel. Hug some man.